Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. It's Sunday, February 27, 2022. Welcome to the third episode in a new series from Midas Touch and 5-Minute News called The Weekend Show. Uh, thank you for your response to last week's episode. Don't forget you can go back on YouTube and check out previous episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to the 5-Minute News daily audio podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me today is Defensive Information Security Specialist and formerly the Senior Cybersecurity Staffer on the campaign to elect Joe Biden, Jackie Singh, and award-winning independent member of the White House Press Corps and founder of the West Wing Reports podcast, Paul Brandis. Hello to you both. Now, we have several topics to discuss today, including Joe Biden, who on Friday morning nominated the federal appeals court judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court, making her the first black woman selected to serve on a court that once declared her race unworthy of citizenship and endorsed segregation. That subject in just a moment. First, it's essential that we look at Ukraine today as Russian troops bore down on Ukraine's capital on Friday with gunfire and explosions resonating ever closer to the government quarter in an invasion of a democratic country that has fueled fears of wider war in Europe and triggered worldwide efforts to make Russia stop. Uh, Paul, let's start with you. This is unprecedented. People are saying that we haven't seen an invasion like this since World War II. And we're dealing with a man in Vladimir Putin who is impossible to predict. Well, we've seen uh, actually invasions of this sort by the Russians uh, post-World War II. Of course, they moved into Hungary in 1956, Czechoslovakia and 1968, this uh, practice of moving into places that are moving in directions that make the Kremlin uncomfortable, uh, not exactly new, but what's new here is simply the size and scale of it. Ukraine is a huge country, about twice the size of uh, Texas, if that gives Americans some context, and they have invaded from three separate directions, from the north, from the east, from the south. This is really just a full-fledged massive invasion. So to your point, it really, uh, from that uh, standpoint, it is unprecedented since 1945. And as we speak on Friday, I'm not sure based on folks that I'm talking to and what I'm reading is that it's all going according to the Kremlin plan. They are having all kinds of trouble as they advance on Kiev. I think eventually they're going to uh, wear down the Ukrainians, but the Russians, from what I am reading and hearing, people here in Washington I'm talking to, uh, they're taking higher than expected uh, casualties. And I think if they try and occupy Kiev and some of these other cities, I think they're going to uh, have a lot of a partisan resistance. 
and casualties for them, I think, will mount. We've seen protests right across Russia, of course, in multiple cities where people are standing up to Putin, despite it being illegal to protest unlawfully, as he says. Jackie, let's just talk about this misinformation campaign that Putin has waged, where for for many months now, certainly longer, he has presented Ukraine as an enemy responsible for genocide, huge propaganda to try and bring the Russian people onto his side to justify this invasion. How, how, how do you think the Russian people handle a leader, that they effectively an unelected leader, such as Vladimir Putin, for the last 22 years? Well, it's quite difficult for the Russian people because they are in an information environment that is constructed by Putin. And so anecdotally, I've heard a few reports that Russian people don't necessarily understand what is happening. They don't have an international perspective on this operation. And they're relying on the words of their leadership to give them guidance and reassurance. And as we've seen from the protests that have happened in St. Petersburg and other Russian cities over the past several days, we're seeing that it's not working. So Russia is finding itself dealing with a problem internally as they are working to invade Ukraine. And the, the bigger picture here is that Putin is fighting multiple wars, isn't he? It's, it's not just the Ukrainian people that he's fighting against, but he's also fighting against his own people back home with information warfare. Paul, do you think that uh, this is something that Putin really has the capacity to handle because a lot of people are saying that, you know, he actually could lose control of his own country over this. Well, I worked in Moscow for five years, uh, including the tail end of the Soviet uh, era. I was uh, quite a young lad uh, at the time. And I remember a story told to me, it was really a joke by an old uh, Soviet foreign ministry official uh, when I asked about uh, free speech in the Soviet Union. And he said, of course, we have a, a freedom of speech in Russia, just no freedom after speech. It's a rather uh, clever uh, line. And the problem with the Putin now is that uh, this is not the Soviet Union. It's not as repressive in Putin's Russia as it was back then. And that is the problem. The protests that we've seen in St. Petersburg and other cities across this country have really been uh, quite large. Uh, I think, as you or Jackie said, uh, they're supposed to be illegal, but it's really hard to uh, do something when you have thousands of people out in the street. The problem for Putin is he wants to wrap up this uh, Ukrainian invasion quickly, move on to other things before these protests get out of control. It's helpful that uh, he controls all the uh, television networks in Russia. They're state-run, owned by the Kremlin. Uh, there are no uh, conflicting accounts. He can shut down Twitter whenever he wants to. He's silenced, even assassinated political opponents. Journalists have been killed. He can be as ruthless as he needs to be. That's what the history uh, shows. He's not really done anything like that now, but if uh, things get out of control, uh, you know, his history suggests that he will be as ruthless as he needs to be to hang on to power. And despite the atrocities of Russia, of Putin, the Kremlin, upon his own people, 
let alone the poisoning and the arrest of Alexei Navalny, the only opposition leader, unofficial opposition leader. There are no free and fair elections in Russia. You know, Putin wants to remain there for another 20 years, if not longer. So why is it then that we seem to overhear, and maybe it's part of this information warfare that Putin has been operating, why do, do we have an increasing number of people in the US who are starting to look at Putin as a friend rather than a foe. Jackie, could you tell us a little bit about that relationship and how it changed, maybe under the Trump administration, where he tried to befriend this dictator? Yes. uh, We all saw Trump cozy up to Putin in a way that would have been anathema if done by any other American president. Uh, It was was bizarre. And a complete departure from the values of the United States that I that I was raised in, right? The United States that I was raised in was an anti-fascist country. And so it is quite confusing to start to see a convergence of these topics and these beliefs, right? There's a there's a there's the MAGA crowd and then there are the pro-Russia beliefs that somehow are converging. And when you take a look at social media, you know, for example, I spent the last two weeks researching on Telegram. The Telegram is founded by the Russian folks who launched VK, which is Russia's equivalent of LinkedIn. So they know data. They understand how to profile people. They understand how to run a social network. This isn't new for them. Uh, Telegram itself, I believe, was founded in 2013, so it also isn't a new platform. But on this platform, you can really uh, operate with impunity. Generally speaking, influence operations aren't shut down. They're allowed to proliferate and disseminate disinformation quite freely. And what I've seen uh, over the past few weeks, specifically within the context of the trucker convoy uh, movement or protests, is that there was an inauthentic and coordinated attempt to manipulate real people into believing that there are legions of other folks who have certain beliefs. And so if you join a chat room, you're, you're, say you start over on Gab, or perhaps you start over on Truth Social, on Trump's social, new social network, um, you're looking for a place to communicate freely and to feel like you aren't censored and to feel like the topics that you want to discuss are relevant and important. Imagine joining a chat room and seeing hundreds of thousands of people echoing your own beliefs. It's really unfortunate that Americans and Westerners in general simply aren't attuned to the depth of experience that Russia has in conducting influence operations. Uh, There's a great book written by Thomas Ridd called Active Measures that I highly recommend that really goes into that history and and, uh, will give anyone a great overview of how these work. But the reality is that there aren't hundreds of thousands of people daily on Twitter who are saying Biden sucks, which is causing Biden sucks to be a trending hashtag. The reality is that the platforms such as Telegram and Twitter and Facebook are simply unable or unwilling to do the hard work of removing these influence operations from their platforms and preventing Americans and more broadly Westerners from being ensnared in these uh, quite complex influence operations, frankly. 
Because fun- fundamentally, we are living in our own echo chambers, aren't we? You know, we choose our social media feeds. We invariably follow people that are like-minded with us. I mean, hopefully, those of us who are journalists try and follow as many people with opposing views so we get a sense of what's out there. And you're right, the, you know, the Let's Go Brandon movement is, is massive and is still continuing. And, you know, this week the, the, at the... the, at the uh, uh, conservative conference, they're still like shouting that from the rooftops. It's essentially so it's very, a meme. They've discovered it's, memes. It's essentially a meme and it's <laughs> become a thing. It's become a thing. So we are living now in what I think of in my mind as like parallel universes, but we're on like train tracks, we're on railroads, all heading in different directions where where our reality is different to the person on the on the on the alongside track. Paul, where does this leave us? Because when it comes to free and democratic elections, certainly here in the United States, I mean, with this social media movement of conspiracy theories or or of opinions that suddenly become the news, how are we ever going to have a fair election in America ever again? Well, it's certainly awfully hard. And to Jackie's point, I mean, uh, and yours, the echo chamber mentality is really a very debilitating thing. I mean, we have this tribalism that makes it almost impossible for people to be exposed to other points of view, even if, uh, even if, I mean, physically, of course, the ability is there. People simply are not willing to tolerate views that deviate from what they're desperate to think and believe. That is the problem. And you can sort of look at Sort of the makeup in Congress, for example, it reflects that. The political center has disappeared. You have people on the far left or the far, far right who in the old days, of course, politicians would uh, socialize together, uh, fight during the day civilly, but then go out for drinks and that kind of thing. Now, that kind of a lifestyle is long gone. These folks on the left and right don't even know each other. They don't talk to each other. And there are surveys that show that Republicans and Democrats each see each other in almost uh, existentialist threat terms. It's really remarkable. There's no middle ground. It's exceedingly dangerous. And how you have a free and fair election uh, in that kind of environment, uh, man, it's just uh, it's just uh, all kinds of problems galore. But uh, you know, having extremes who won't acknowledge each other, or don't acknowledge that the other person has a legitimate point of view even though disagree with theirs. Uh, boy, what a, it's just a, what a huge, messy problem. I don't to, know how to, we get beyond that. Your, your experience in the, you know, covering the White House. I mean, have you ever seen the likes of, I think it was Paul Gosar that had, a, you know, a meme against oh. uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, the, the, wanting to kill her. I mean, this, these, these people are elected representatives and it's as if the, the Republican Party has embraced the far right, the extreme right, and it's all become one thing now. I mean, are there any, apart from Adam Kinsinger maybe, and, and um, you know, a handful of people. And he, he's leaving. He's not, even, he's not even sticking around, is he? Yeah. So, I mean, what, what future is there for a, for a moderate Republican Party when currently it's embracing the extremes of society? Well, I think it's a. It's obviously. I'd be curious to hear what Jackie thinks. But look, it's a. It's a demographic uh, issue. The Republican Party has been largely reduced to uh, older white 
people. Uh, that is obviously a shrinking part of the electorate. It won't be long before they're a, uh, what's the phrase, a minority majority. I think uh, we're less than 50% of white births in this uh, country now, or maybe not in the country, but in certain states, uh, it's less than 50%. So uh, I think they get uh, more desperate to hang on to uh, culturally and socially uh, what they knew growing up, and they're threatened by people of, say, different ethnicities, different religions, different colors, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and I think what we're seeing is, frankly, some uh, desperation here. And, you know, people talk about how, oh, Trump had changed everything. No, all of this existed long before Donald Trump came in. He simply rode the wave of these pre-existing uh, trends to great effect in 2016. Uh, and there's a very a reasonable possibility, I think, that he could uh, win again in uh, 2024. Jackie, let's talk a little bit about um, just I want to bring it back to Ukraine for just a moment, because we're in a situation now where there are some Republican voices that are suggesting that Joe Biden is not doing enough. And uh, you see Anthony Blinken, who has, I think, played a bit of a blinder here, you know, to coin an English phrase, you know, he's, he's really maintained the diplomacy. Uh, and nobody really from the White House has wanted to come forward and, and even say out loud, you need to stand down, Vladimir Putin, like you need to stop this war. They're not even using that language at the moment. They're just focusing on, on sanctions. Jackie, do you think that the Republicans have a point? Do you think that it would be advisable for Joe Biden to raise the stakes? Or is this threat of the war expanding beyond the confines of Ukraine a, a serious one? So first of all, I have to say, I think the, the administration has done a great job. You know, they inherited an incredibly uh, potent set of country harming, democracy tearing crises and, uh, you know, from their incumbent. And I think they've done an admirable job. I think the, the work that needed to be done is riding the ship of democracy. I think we're still in the process. We're in a rocky moment and we're still working together to right the, the ship of democracy. Uh, with that said, there are folks who are who complain that that Joe hasn't done enough, that the administration isn't doing enough, that they aren't loud enough. And in reality, what we're seeing is a restoration of respect for the United States and its role. We're seeing a restoration of our intelligence services and the role that they play in our country, whereas they had been quite downgraded and denigrated by the predecessor, by their predecessor. And we're seeing a restoration of the State Department in our diplomatic affairs around the world, whereas the State Department had really been, again, denigrated and put down and reduced in its importance and not given the respect that it deserves and the role that it plays in our country. So I think they've done a great job with that. You got to remember, it was only in uh, four, what, three and a half, four years ago in Helsinki when Trump and Putin met and Trump said, well, I believe Putin when he says that he wasn't involved in uh, espionage activities on our campaign or anything like that. Well, the facts have obviously since proven uh, otherwise, but you got to consider this. What if we had the situation now and you had an American president who still did not uh, trust what American intelligence agencies were saying? They nailed this. They predicted exactly what the Russians would do. They said it's going to start here. This is what they're likely 
to do. Intelligence is nothing more than an educated guess based on uh, bits of data here, uh, an anecdote there, uh, this kind of thing. Intelligence is never perfect. And history has shown that. This one, though, they got exactly right. But can you imagine if you had a commander in chief who said, well, I don't believe you. I'm going to believe the other guy instead. It's really a mind boggling question. But that's where we were just a couple of years ago. But is that is that likely to because uh, he hasn't gone away? You know, Trump still thinks he's the president. He Mar-a-Lago to him is the Winter White House. You know, he people are still calling him Mr. President. He's rung into every right wing news network in the last week. Uh, he referred to Vladimir Putin as a genius. He said that it was very smart, the, the moves that he, he's made. Jackie, how unhelpful is it to have the former president making these claims and having, you know, he had 70 million people voted for him? I mean, they're listening to him, aren't they? You know, in reality, I think it's it's helpful in a way because there are many Republicans who aren't friends with communists and don't want to be friends with communists, right? And so when you really see the clarity of the picture here and you uh, come to realize, you maybe as a Republican, you may have a sinking realization that, you know, you've been on the wrong horse <laughs> and, you know, it, it, uh, it might actually work in our favor, right? I think what the, the policy of the administration right now in terms of releasing intelligence that may have in the past remained classified, remained... Uh, uh, in the president's daily briefings, remained in the briefings to Congress, right? Doing that is a commitment to truth. Doing that is the best option to counter disinformation because you provide your best estimate and it comes true and it creates a validation point, right? And I think really everyone has validation points. Right. Yes, yes, I agree. Yeah. I agree, Paul. Uh, I'm from... England, which is a socialist country that is run by a conservative government. And when I explain that to my American friends here in the US, they, they just it does not compute for them. What is this kind of phrase? You remember when Bernie Sanders, when he was, you know, running for the for the uh, uh, position, he you know, wanted to be the be the nominee they were called referring to him as like a radical socialist. They were referring to him as a communist, even. I am yet to work out why Americans can't get their heads around what socialism is, what communism is, how socialism can sit side by side with capitalism these days, how America would never become a, uh, you know, a socialist state, no matter even if Bernie Sanders was running it. You know, can we just talk a little bit about this phrase, and fear of communism and fear of socialism. And, and is this event now in Ukraine with, you know, Russia wanting to, you know, because Putin wants to install a, uh, a Putin-friendly leader, I presume. He wants to take down Vladimir Zelensky. What is this fear of another way of doing it, Paul? Well, people don't know what these terms mean. They simply don't. And, exactly. you know, there's a, a couple of pictures on my uh, Twitter account that sometimes I will post just for fun. And one of them has a picture of an old lady and she's got a sign she's holding up and has a hammer and sickle. And the sign says, uh, uh, keep the government's hands off my Medicare. Like, what? <laughs> government should not mess around 
with Medicare and Social Security. And of course, these are the biggest government programs of all. These folks don't know where these things come from. I was about to say the same thing. I mean, you know, this is a capitalist country with quite a few socialist policies, quite a few very- Well, Social Security has got the word social in the title. What do you think? Social Security (laughs) just grows on trees or something? And that's what, so they have no idea what these things mean. And if you ask them, again, this is where the- the tribalism comes in. It's hard to have a conversation with folks when they simply can't entertain other points of view. For example, socialism is, well, we pay taxes and in return, uh, we expect uh, the fire department uh, to be there if we need them. They pave our roads. They deliver the mail. We pay money into a collective uh, pot, essentially, that uh, pays for these things for the common good. And if you explain to people, well, in one form, that's what you might call socialism. And it's hard for them to compute that kind of thing. They simply say, no, that's not, you're wrong, that's not true. That's not what socialism is. Well, what is it? And they can never really answer uh, the question. And again, to come back to that old lady, I should send you this picture and you could insert it into your show. It's really amusing the way that people think. And again, they don't know what these terms are. Uh, I've been doing this for a long time. They simply don't know what the terms are, but of course they think they know. There's been a permanent conflation. Oh, I was going to say there's been a permanent conflation of socialism, communism, and evil, right? And there's a belief that these, it's, I feel like it's almost a, uh, a holdover from the Red Scare, right? Like we're still living that way, but how does that work in combination with what we're seeing today where you have, uh, you know, GOP candidates for office who are openly professing admiration for for Putin. I, I just don't really know. Um, I don't really know how you can uh, kind of reconcile the two points of view. And so it really goes back to what Paul is saying that folks don't really understand what these things mean. And the people who would, um, you know, kind of abuse these hot button issues, uh, you know, America's adversaries, whether outside our country or within, they're really quite good at leveraging these topics to create divisiveness. Right. So if it sounds scary to Americans, they love to use yeah. it. And the fact, Jackie, that we're even talking about uh, these things uh, makes us communists. No question about it. And you too, Anthony. You're from yeah. England. You're you're one of them too. So, <laughs> Definitely. Well, that's I mean, what people think. And just for the record, I'll, and just for the record, I'll say that I'm a, a red-blooded capitalist. I even worked on Wall Street for several years, so I'm one of those uh, capitalist, you know, like bad guys that people like to. But again, people don't know what these terms mean. They simply don't. But again. They think they know. And that's the thing I keep coming back to. You can't tell folks uh, anything if they are not willing to open their ears. They're not. I do notice that there is a belief that um, that capitalism would be supplanted entirely by a socialist system or that a socialist system would be supplanted entirely by a capitalist system. And so I think Americans need to get better at thinking about the issues within the context of our own country and what makes sense for our communities and ourselves and kind of forget about what those other associations are, right? Stop labeling things and putting them into a box because it actually keeps you from being able to engage with that idea on its own as a naked idea, as opposed to kind of wrapping it in a political concept that isn't very well understood by Americans in 2022. And maybe that's where Bernie Sanders went wrong with the nomination. Instead of saying Medicare for all over and over again, he should have said Medicare for anybody who wants it and you can still go private. And, and I think people thought it was one thing or the other. 
and didn't realize that actually these, as you say, these systems can coexist exactly as we have in the United Kingdom. Um, and also, I just wanted to mention that the military, of course, you know, we uh, Donald Trump did this, you know, shouting about how we have the finest, the biggest, the greatest military in the world. Well, if that's not a socialist construct, I don't know what is. <laughs> Let's um, move on, because I'm very keen to talk about uh, the um, nomination of uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court, which would make her the first black woman selected to serve on the Supreme Court. And uh, this was something that was announced on Friday by Joe Biden. And it has um, there were there were three kind of shortlisted candidates, really, that were names that were floating around and and. Uh, this name is is was very much the favorite of of the left for multiple reasons but mainly because when you've got a when you've got a conservative leaning supreme court which of course is a crazy concept to me because in england the supreme court cannot be political it's just it's not allowed and so i've had to get my head around the fact that i now live in a country that has a political supreme court we can talk about that for endlessly, but let's talk specifically about the first black woman to ascend to the Supreme Court. Um, Jackie, do you think that this is going to see, is this going to be an easy nomination? I mean, will this be ratified or, or, or is Biden going to struggle to get this, um, to get this person onto the bench? I had a great conversation with my mother about this. You know, I consider her to be essentially the prototypical boomer, you know, her political attitudes um, are, are for me a, a bit of a stand in for, for the political attitudes that helped Trump get elected. And, um, you know, Ronald Reagan ran on the promise of electing a woman to the Supreme Court and the promise of um, added racial equity on the highest court was also promised by Joe as a, you know, during his campaign. And so I think the nomination is simply being exploited by the GOP to anger their base, right? They do this with all topics relating to sex and race. And so the, the more they can muddy the waters, the less context they can provide, the less they can align the actions of the current administration to previous administrations that were more ideologically aligned to the right, uh, you know, the more that plays to their favor. And so my mother really had no context. All she had seen and all she had heard was that Joe Biden had decided that a black woman would be on the Supreme Court and that struck her as wrong, right? And I had to have a conversation with her about what representation means. I mean, gosh, when Kamala was nominated uh, to, to be the, the vice presidential pick, I, um, I publicly told the world that I was working on this campaign. You know, I talked to my boss and did everything I could to clean up my internet um, presence and um, make sure all my passwords were long and complex and that my cybersecurity profile in general was quite good. And I was roundly attacked and folks even came after my ethnic background and said, oh, now you're Afro-Caribbean? I said, yes, my mother's from the Dominican Republic and my father's from India. So I have a bit of a similar background to Kamala and I, having three daughters, it felt extremely important for me to provide that representation for them and for all the women in science, technology, engineering, and math that follow me online. And I was roundly attacked for this. Uh, like I said, I, I'm of Afro-Caribbean descent. I'm half Dominican on my mother's side and half Indian on my father's side, Indian from India, not Native American. And I was shocked to see the response. I was shocked to learn about how America's adversaries would use this information to 
try and create added divisiveness. I just couldn't uh, reconcile or put together in my mind that the racially diverse America in which I grew up was somehow offended at my appointment or offended at Kamala's appointment or offended at Judge Brown Jackson's appointment. And I'm just a bit confused by that. I'm left confused by that because it doesn't feel like the America I was raised in. I was born in New York City. I lived in New York. I lived in Florida. And I, I never saw the divisiveness, the racial divisiveness in our country. I didn't experience that until we saw the run-up to Trump being elected in our country. And I even split from my ex-husband because he didn't understand the difference in the tone of the populace and the interactions that I was having on a regular basis living in the panhandle of Florida in a more rural part of our country and how folks would treat me at the grocery store. You know, I, I once bent down to pick something up for a man in a wheelchair and he gave me a look of disgust that I, I can't even replicate. It was just so bizarre. I burst out laughing, but it really isn't funny and it's uh, just gotten worse. And so I think the, the divisiveness I think has been uh, propagated, has been, has been seeded has been delivered, has been propagated by forces that are hostile to our country. I think that the chaos and the division and the shouting and the belief, reinforcing the belief that we are so different from each other is exactly what the purpose of these influence operations is. Because the reality is that America has been a united fabric of different people from different places and that has always been the very the, the core of our dna and so i think we've all forgotten that and i really think that even amongst the democratic party we may have forgotten that and so i want to call for unity right we're in a moment that really calls for unity that calls for putting aside petty differences that calls for recognizing the people to your left and your right as human beings that you care for that are in your communities that matter because every person in America matters. And I think we can get back to that. And I just think it, it takes a bit more uh, careful stewardship, not just by us with each other and of the administration with our country, but also of these social media platforms and our discourse. You know, I think really enough is enough and we really need to start holding Facebook and Twitter and Telegram and these other, you know, TikTok, these platforms that operate within our boundaries, within our jurisdictions, they really need to apply the right level and amount of pressure to stop these disinformation campaigns at the tech side, where they can be detected and stopped, where they have been proven to be able to be detected and stopped. And so we've got to stop hearing excuses from social media platforms and excuses from the media that they can't solve these problems. They are solvable. And they don't originate. We, we also need to look to us. our elected representatives to set an example, don't we? Because, you know, as we know, Trump did give people license to say what they really felt. I'm, you know, and as you quite rightly said earlier, you know, racism, it wasn't that it didn't exist before Trump, but Trump opened the 
he opened a Pandora's box and gave license to people to actually think, well, well, if the president can say stuff like this, if he can ban all Muslims coming into the United States, then we can say whatever we like. And so yes. we see hate crime increase. And we see, and then, of course, the pandemic didn't help when he referred to it as the China virus or the Kung flu. Well, that's really I mean, what we is, mean by a role model, isn't it, Anthony? Right. I mean, if, if the president of our country isn't the ultimate role model on which we can depend uh, right. for, and for, you know, what what is... What is what is proper? What is ethical? What is moral? What is right? We are the shining light on the hill. And I want us to get back to that. And I think we can get back to that. But to your point, it really does rely on modeling the behaviors that show politicians that are elected to these offices because they truly care about the people, period. And I think we've gotten pretty far away from that, too. I think we need to focus on that in our politics. Yeah. Paul, I have a question for you. And that is that is the has the Republican Party been outed now as a racist party? Does everything go back to race now? Is is the is the nomination of a, a female black Supreme Court judge is is the is what the what Biden's going to come up against? Is it just pure racism? Does this is this connected to them wanting to ban books in schools or inventing that critical race theory, which is a university module that like six people look at, is being taught in in uh, in in high schools? I mean, does is this a make America white again? I mean, I keep coming back to that phrase every time I hear the MAGA. In my head, I'm replacing the G with a W. Am I fair to be doing that? Well, first of all, the uh, the Jackson nomination, uh, I don't think is going to, uh, I think it'll be a close vote, but uh, keep in mind that for nominations of uh, this sort, there's, uh, you know, nothing like a, a filibuster or anything that you, you only need a simple majority of votes to confirm a Supreme Court uh, justice, I think it's. But they a can lower drag it out, bar. can't they? I mean, that's what they've it's said. Well, they're gonna, I think they're it's gonna, a lower gonna... bar, and based on some comments we've seen, some even from even some Republicans, uh, I think she'll get uh, approved uh, in the end. But uh, it will be, I think, a pretty uh, close uh, vote. Uh, she's already been uh, tagged as being kind of a far left nominee, whether that's true or not. In fact, Republicans are already. Uh, fundraising off the nomination. You know, when they squawk about things, what they really do, and I think Jackie mentioned this, is they're trying to get their base revved up and contribute money. And that's what's going on here with the Jackson campaign, uh, the Jackson uh, nomination. And if you look at what uh, the president said on Friday about Jackson, uh, he was really throwing red meat to his own base. He's playing the game too, saying a daughter of a former public school teacher, uh, accomplished lawyer, distinguished a jurist, an independent mind, but what a daughter again of a former public school teacher. You know, he's talking exactly to the kind of folks that he needs and is going to need in big numbers in November, by the way, if he expects to hold on to the House. You know, your other question, you know, whether the Republicans are racist or not. You know, time is if you if you were to talk about that, uh, it depends on sort of the, the time frame that you're talking about. Republicans will always come back and say, well, Lincoln was a Republican and he freed the slaves and Democrats were the ones who were fighting. The Southern Democrats were the ones who were fighting uh, LBJ's Civil Rights Act in the mid 
1960s. It depends on the time frame that you uh, attach. That's what Republicans always say. Well, Lincoln was a Republican, and look what he did. Well, this is not 1865. It's 2022. And right now, it certainly appears, again, as if you look at uh, who makes up the Republican base. Again, we talked about this. That tends to skew older, tends to skew uh, male, it tends to skew uh, rural, uh, and their voter base also, also tends to skew uh, largely undereducated. I'm not saying they're dumb. I'm saying in terms of uh, that they, they don't have uh, bachelor's degrees or master's degrees with the same uh, percentages as uh, other voting blocks. So with those kind of characteristics, they're perhaps more likely to think in ways that uh, some Democrats might consider a racist. Uh, you know, folks that marched in uh, Charlottesville, for example, uh, clearly fit that bill. So it depends on sort of how you look at it, the time frame that we're using. I know certainly uh, enough Republicans who uh, I would not consider racist, but then I certainly know Republicans who, uh, frankly, through their words and actions, you can certainly uh, wonder about them. So, And, and of course, there's the you know, there's there's malicious and outward racism, and then there's systemic racism, which you know I'm sure exists at, at multiple levels. And there was a, a leaked recording of uh, Ronald Reagan a few days ago using a kind of racist trope when uh, having a, a conversation on the on the telephone. So, you know, maybe you know, go I ahead. Find it, I find it really interesting that you know folks in those areas that you mentioned, Paul, are essentially conned again and again into voting for their own best interests, into voting, uh, you know, against uh, strengthening education, which is a huge problem in the South. As somebody who lived in the South and lived in the rural South uh, for, for many years and was married to a man from Alabama, right? Like, I understand these issues. I understand those people. And so I, I find it quite disgusting that race and sex are used to to upset people and cause them to donate money, which then results in folks getting elected that don't solve the problems that those folks donated the money for. So it's really kind of a vicious cycle and it's, it's disappointing. And, um, you know, you certainly see it in, in Alabama and in Mississippi, uh, in Georgia and Louisiana and Arkansas, well, right? Well, the vicious cycle is interesting in that uh, I think that's a uh, true and what the vicious cycle really means is that if you look at, say, databases of states that tend to, again, have a lower education, a lower income, uh, the inferior job uh, opportunities, lower levels of capital investment, higher levels, by the way, of uh, you know drug use and opioids and all of that, uh, they tend to be in red states. And the fact that I'm saying this doesn't make me a communist. It doesn't make me a liberal. It doesn't make me a Democrat. It simply makes me a truth teller because that is what the facts and the data show. And the vicious circle, Jackie, I think that's a really good phrase. What we see is that uh, folks, young people who graduate from high school or college uh, in these parts of the country in red states, they tend to gravitate uh, sooner rather than later to, say, the West Coast or the East Coast, uh, Austin, places like that, where uh, they can find high-paying jobs and contribute more uh, as opposed to staying, you mentioned, you know, the uh, Florida Panhandle or Alabama 
you know, there are plenty of nice folks in those areas, but in terms of uh, opportunities, there's really not a lot to keep younger, better educated folks there and they leave the vicious cycle continues. So when they complain about how, well, uh, we're not the real America, the, the East Coast and the West Coast. Well, are they suggesting that uh, those states with all the problems that I mentioned, is that the real America? I think the answer is that there are really two Americas. There's one uh, with the highly educated, a mobile, technologically savvy workforce. And then there's another America that has all of the inferior characteristics uh, that I mentioned. So there are two narratives and they're both accurate. And the divide is that, uh, you know, we just can't, uh, we can't talk about it because, again, the right has this view that the left is an existential threat and the left has a view that the right is an existential threat. And as I mentioned, you know, the middle ground, those folks have largely disappeared. We simply can't talk to each other and the vicious cycle continues. There is also an exploitation of the great replacement theory, right? There's an exploitation of the demographic anxiety in order to get people to uh, uh, accept white supremacist ideology, such as the great replacement, which is the belief that there is an intentional conspiracy to, um, to cause white to be a minority in our country, which is, it's absolutely ridiculous, right? I mean, these demographic shifts are happening because we're in America that brings in different types of people. And those people are, are starting to thrive. They're starting to flourish a little bit more. And so there are more of us. I mean, gosh, I'm so happy. I'm so glad that my parents, both of whom were born outside the United States, decided to come to the United States or were brought here by their parents. Thank God. I love America. What a great country to be a part of. What a great country to be born in. But I think, you know, when you, you know, Paul, to your point about folks uh, heading out from, from these, uh, you know, small towns into the, into the uh, coast, are they now becoming coastal elites? Does it, you know, or do you become a coastal elite by virtue of, you know, moving from a red state to a blue city and looking for a better quality of life, looking for a way to bring your family up, looking for a way to make sure that your children can go to college. I mean, that's really what people are doing when they're moving to blue cities and blue states. And so you really have to start asking yourself, you know, if that's where the resources are and that's where people are moving and that's where things are good for millennials and for Gen Z, then, you know, we really need to start thinking about why it seems acceptable to continue promoting the policies that keep the red states down. But you got to be careful, though, about saying, Jackie, that uh, people are moving to blue states. California has actually had a lot of uh, out-migration in recent years. New York has had too a lot expensive. of out-migration. Well, it's too expensive. Uh, yes. There are worries about uh, the schools aren't good enough. There's, uh, cry you know, on and on uh, and on. Uh, Florida, of course, has no tax and Texas has no income tax. And people are moving there. Of course, they don't realize until they get there that, uh, you know, you get what you pay for sometimes. And there are problems in Florida with uh, schools now. And so many people have moved to Florida that uh, there are housing affordability issues and on and on and on. These things tend to run in cycles. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't make a general statement about, you know, people in general are moving to blue states because, you know, the, the moving van data, which a lot of uh, Wall Street analysts track, 
shows that uh, there's certainly been a lot of uh, out-migration. And what's interesting about the red states, by the way, got folks in California who are going to uh, Nevada. Again, there's another state with no income tax. Uh, Nevada and Idaho and Wyoming and places like that. Uh, wonderful places uh, to live, but these are red states, and the red state folks are now worried about, oh, all these uh, communists are coming in from uh, California with their uh, left coast ideology and they're going to ruin it for us. So it'll be interesting to see how all that, uh, who will influence who. It'll be interesting to see how but, all but that. But isn't that the theme of all of this, Paul and Jackie? Isn't that the theme of all of this? Whether we're talking about race, we're also talking about fear. And I think fundamentally, fear is something that kind of underlines the whole American debate on both sides. And I think that, you know, when just bringing it back to the Supreme Court for a moment and with Judge Brown Jackson, I guess there is fear from people on the right that this is, you know, again, going to, despite the conservative majority on the court. In fact, interestingly, I read a couple of weeks ago a very interesting article that said the most influential person on the Supreme Court was the, was the wife of Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas, uh, a, a, a black conservative, and his wife, a white far-right activist. She's and a hidden that, influencer. She's Supreme a Court. hidden influencer. Yeah, there are lots of questions about how appropriate right. that really is. So that that really is, you know, a bigger debate we don't have time for today. But I, it's just very interesting where the influence comes from. You know, it's often not the people out front, but the people round the back. I mean, Ronald Reagan's a perfect example of that. Um, thank you, both of you, for joining us here on the weekend show today. So very, much. very interesting My to pleasure. talk to you, thank you so much. to you both. My thanks to Jackie Singh and Paul Brandis. Don't forget to subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube. Also, the 5-Minute News daily audio podcast, which drops in the early hours of the morning. So it's there when you wake up. You can listen to it every weekday morning while you're making your morning coffee. Thank you for joining us today on The Weekend Show. I'm Anthony Davis. Join me next Sunday morning with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the 5-Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Touch. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.